your Bibles, will you join me this morning in Colossians chapter 1? Colossians chapter 1, we're going to be starting in verse 19 this morning, Colossians 1.19. And last week, as we were verse by verse through the wonderful book of Colossians, we saw Jesus high and lifted up, if you remember. We saw the deity of Christ, that Jesus is indeed our God, the, the creator of heaven and earth, right? The one who made everything and sustains it all. What a wonderful passage. And I encourage you to go back and reread the passages that we've been studying on Sunday. We learned that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, right? If you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. There he is. If you've seen Christ, you have seen the Father. We learned that Jesus, he created everything and he sustains it. And as we were just singing about and praying about, right, we were made by him and, and, and for him. Hmm. So if we're not loving Him, if we're not serving Him, if we're not worshiping Him with our lives, we're really not fulfilling the reason why we exist, which is what Jennifer was talking about. I know there's some squirrels involved, but it's a reason for our existence to love and worship God. We learn that Jesus rose from the dead never to die again. Right? He's the firstborn from among the dead, because other people rose from the dead, but we learn that hey, His was different because He's never going to die again, a new resurrected body, and He did it by His own power. And his body is a pattern of the one that we will have one day. So I encourage you guys to be reading through the book of Colossians in the month of September. we got one week left. So if you haven't read through the entire uh, book of Colossians, boy, this is the week to do it. Okay, Go ahead and read it. You will be blessed. And I just want to encourage you to uh, read the section for each Sunday. Because if you were here, you know where I left off. So go there and read a little further. You're not sure where I'm going to end, but read for a bit. What if you did that Sunday morning and made it a tradition? What if you did it on Saturday night, or you did it with the children of the family, and then you prayed for the congregation? You prayed for your own hearts and new people who might come and prayed for your pastor. I need your prayers as well. And how much more blessed would we be, right, if we come in ready and primed, warmed up with the Word of God and in prayer? Because sometimes we come to church just kind of cold. We just staggered in. I made it. Here I am, right? And I don't know what's going on. But if we come in in the Word, in prayer. Boy, we'll, we'll be even more blessed. You can come in cold and get blessed, but hey, <laughs> let's come in ready. And uh, the Lord will speak to us even in a greater way, I believe. Hmm. Now this morning, our passage takes us back to the deity of Christ once again for just a moment. Then we go to the glorious work of reconciling that Jesus does at the cross through His shed blood. A magnificent passage. We're going to see where we used to be before Jesus, and we're going to see where we are standing now in Christ. Awesome stuff. And we're going to see that we have to continue walking in the faith. Hmm. Have to continue walking in the faith, not being moved about away from the gospel. All right, so let's stand out of reverence for God's wonderful word. And let's read our passage this morning. So Colossians 1, starting in verse 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, in Christ, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body, through death, to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, 
This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So another wonderful deep passage a full meal in just a couple little verses here. And remember, we don't, uh, man does not just live by bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. So the words of God this morning, let us feast upon them. Let us enjoy them. Verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus, in him. Hmm. We talked a lot about that kind of stuff last week. Jesus is full. Fully God, right? God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. Remember, he is 100% God and 100% man. He's not half and half or 95% this. No, totally God (laughs) and totally man. And it's called the incarnation where God became flesh and blood and dwelt among us. In the person of Jesus. Wonderful, wonderful. We learned last week again, one God, but three co-equal persons as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The triunity of God. It's a wonderful mystery, right? Our little gray cells aren't going to grasp it all. But that's the, the, there's the plurality of God in the midst of the singularity of God. Huh? He's just awesome. He's just awesome. Hebrews 1, 3 says uh, that the, the Son of God, Jesus, is the exact representation of God's being. He's exactly God. Huh. And look over in chapter 2 of Colossians, verse 9. It says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Mm. All the fullness of God has always lived in Jesus, by the way. Always. Throughout eternity past, and when Jesus walked upon the earth, and now and for all eternity, always. Jesus is God. And I just love to say it, but that means that he's the maker of heaven and earth, as we learned last week. He made everything. That means that the one who hung the stars in the sky and built this vast universe that is staggering, he's the same one who hung on the cross for my sins. So when I see Jesus, I can think, wow, he's my God and my creator, and there he is giving his life. Sacrificing everything to save us. Oh, the love of God, how deep, how wide, how huge is God's love that he would do such a thing for us. And then we go to Christmas time and the baby in Bethlehem. We love it. Christmas will be here before we know it. I know, almost fall. The little manger and the little helpless baby, the Son of God lying there in the manger. (laughs) God humbled himself and entered a womb and came out as a little helpless baby. I say helpless, yes, because he chose to be helpless. He chose to be dependent upon Mary and Joseph. And yet all the fullness of God dwelt in that little squirming, crying, screaming baby, right? Wow, what is that? I don't know. It's amazing. That's our God and his love for us. And Jesus, we don't know what he's like as a little kid running around, except for one time when he was 12 years old in the temple. But, but when he was a little guy running around, he had all the fullness of God dwelling in him. Oh, his brothers and sisters must have been like, who is this guy? We'll never live up to him, right? 
Why can't you be more like Jesus? <laughs> We're trying. We just can't. <laughs> but then as a man, as he walked on the earth, and his teachings and his power and his authority and, and, and the casting of demons and the healing and all that he taught and did, is from the standpoint of the whole, the fullness of God, right? Dwelling in the perfect man, the Lord Jesus. God become flesh. And I think it even becomes more known to us, if you will, when we see Jesus raised from the dead, right? Huh. We should never doubt the resurrection. People struggle with that. I, I know a woman who, who was enamored with Jesus and thought about, oh, he's a great guy, he's pretty neat and all this stuff. And then she found out he raised from the dead, and she's like, ah, I don't think I believe that. Okay, because somehow she failed to understand who Jesus really is. Because if Jesus has all the fullness of God in him, of course he's going to raise from the dead, right? No one's going to kill him and leave him. No, he chose to lay his life down. He chose to take it up. So when we understand who Jesus really is, wow, we don't, we, we don't need to question any of those miraculous things. And what a God we serve. We can love him more. Verse 20. And through him, through Jesus... God is reconciling to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Hmm. So God the Father, through his beloved Son Jesus, he's reconciling all things back to himself through the blood of Christ, where Jesus died on the cross for our sins. So Jesus is reconciling lost man Back to the Father. Now, reconciliation, this word reconcile is a really wonderful word. We need to know what it, what it means. It means to bring back to a former state of harmony. A state we used to have, interesting. To bring back to a former state of harmony. To, to reunite by making, it, making things right. Something was wrong. And there's a separation, but now we're reunited by making things right. Hmm. A returning of where we used to be with God. Well, where did we used to be? Huh. Well, we're really talking about mankind here. Mankind. But it trickles down into each individual life and applies to each one of us. The individual. But man used to be, mankind used to be in perfect relationship with God. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, what a beauty. They walked with God in the cool of the day. They were in perfect harmony and relationship. There was no sin. There was no pride. There was no rebellion. It was righteousness and holiness and the love of God. And all things were perfect there in the garden. Holiness. Hmm. There was no sin. Oh, they loved God perfectly. Peace. Peace with God. But as we all know, that didn't work out so, so well for the long term, did it? <laughs> no, they sinned, they rebelled against God, and here we are today. But they lost that perfect relationship with God. Death came into the world, as God promised, and the relationship with God was severed. It was broken. Now there's separation between them and God. As God said, hey, you got to get out of the garden. That perfect relationship, harmony, was, was, was broken so sin is the deal. Sin is separates us from God. So now, thanks Adam and Eve, mom and pop from way back, now we're not born into righteousness, we're born into sin. 
unrighteousness. We're born little sinners and grow up to be big ones, right? We're in rebellion against God. That's a state of humanity. We're separated. But, oh, God had a plan from the beginning. Right? He did. He knew everything. He knew we'd mess it all up. He knew he'd need a Savior. So Jesus, that's why he's called the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It was always the plan of God. The Bible says that God turned all men over to disobedience. He let us go our own way so that he might have mercy on us all, right? To display his love, to display his mercy. So the plan of God, well, his name is Jesus. The one in whom all the fullness of God dwells. Wow. So Jesus came to earth to reconcile, to bring lost mankind back into harmony with God the Father. The relationship was broken by sin. So Jesus came to deal with that. That's what the cross is all about. So Jesus is the only reconciler. The only reconciler. So we cannot be reconciled back to God on our, our good works, our good looks, <laughs> our good behavior. Right? It's not going to work. We cannot do it. We can never be good enough. We cannot reconcile ourselves. Hmm. And Jesus is the only reconciler. There's nobody else who can... Help us along, right? As the world likes to say that there's lots of good teachers out there, a lot of gurus, a lot of other religions all leading to the same God. You got your, your, your Buddha and your Muhammad and your who's a what's it's and all these guys and all these little paths, but there's really one God and they love to say that. That's because they just don't want to serve Jesus. They want to serve somebody else, apparently. But why is Jesus the only reconciler? Why is he the only one? Because remember, what separated us from God? Sin. And who's the only one who ever came to deal with our issue of sin? Well, it wasn't Buddha. He was wandering around looking for enlightenment. Right? He didn't know what was going on. He was a broken, lost sinner too. Same with Muhammad and all these other guys. Deceived. They needed Jesus. The only one who come to dealt with our sin issue is Christ. The only one. Nobody else even approached any of that. And Jesus did it in a, in a mighty and miraculous, powerful way. For he gave his life. Hmm. Verse 20. And through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood. That's how he did it. Through the blood at the cross, shed on the cross. That's how he brings reconciliation. None of the other guys could do it, right? Jesus sacrificed himself for the sin of the world. All our shame, all our sin fell on Jesus at the cross. He took our punishment. Sin was punished. Our sin was punished in Jesus at the cross. Because that's what separated us from God. Remember, sin is the worst crime against God. The worst crime. We downplay it, but it is the worst thing. That's why Jesus went to the cross, and that's why people will go to hell. It is the worst crime against God. And sin had to be punished, because God is just. He cannot just let the worst criminals in the, against Him just go free. I'll go free. No. He has to punish it in His justice, but we also learn that God isn't just just. Praise God, He's also merciful. And in his mercy, he allows a substitute to take our 
place. That's the whole point of the Old Testament uh, sacrifices. When they brought the little lamb to the temple and it was slain, killed, bled out, cut in pieces, put on the altar as a sin offering, that little lamb took their place. It was a substitutionary atonement, paying for their sin, all looking for the great one who would do it once for all, Jesus, the Lamb of God, the perfect one. So God allows a substitute to be punished on our behalf. And the crazy thing is that who was the punishment? It was none other than God himself. Because right? you understand who Jesus is. He's the fullness of God. That means God himself said, I love you. You messed it all up. But I will sacrifice myself for you. I will bear your sin and your shame and be your substitute. What a merciful and gracious God, right? It's crazy that he would do these things through the person of Jesus as he sent his only son. And all the sin ever committed from Adam through the atrocities of the ages, every moment right now, what sin is being committed all over the world to the very last guy, whoever he is, all of that sin fell on Jesus, your sin and my sin. He died for that. He died for the sin of your neighbor across the street. Look at your neighbor differently. As one for whom Jesus died for, your cousin and your kids and your mom and your dad and the people at work when you see them and they annoy you, know that Jesus bled and died for them. And we're the messengers of re reconciliation. I won't go to that scripture. I almost did, but we've got to keep going on. But we're the messengers. So then Jesus offers reconciliation to lost sinners. The forgiveness of of sins, right? The forgiveness of all our sin. He takes it all away so we can be back in harmony with the Father. Wow. And the key to it all is faith in Jesus. That's the linchpin. That's where it all hangs. Faith in Jesus. Willing to leave the old life of sin and come into a new life with Jesus, following Him. And some are not ready to do that. Some are not willing for those who are, are reconciled to God. Peace with God through the blood of Jesus, as it says. Notice in verse 20, it says something interesting in there. Through him to reconcile to himself all things. Notice the all things. What are, the, what are the all things? Whether things on earth or things in heaven. And you go, well, what's in heaven? That needs to be reconciled by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. All right. So what are the all things? What are the things in heaven and in earth? Well, um, I'm glad you asked. Okay. Glad you asked. It's a great question. And I'm going to attempt to answer that to the best that I can. I'm not sure I have the perfect answers for it all. But I'm going to give you my best thoughts as, as I've studied and prayed and, and looked at this. Hmm. Interesting. Reconciling all things back to God. All right. So we want to be careful how we interpret this because if we're not careful, we could create something called universalism. Universalism. It's the all dogs go to heaven theory. Okay. You're all dogs and you all get to go to heaven, apparently. And uh, they say that because of what Jesus did at the cross, and this passage just like this, and it kind of looks like that, that every human being is forgiven and saved and they get to go to heaven. Right? So there's people out there who are universalists and they believe that. That's not a biblical thought, though. It's a really bad 
theology, but uh, some people take that and go there. But a true good universalist, he's got to go even further. He even has to say that the angelic world, the things in heaven, are going to be reconciled to God as well. So even the devil himself and all the demonic hosts who do all their wretched things, that they will even be reconciled and saved and brought back into right relationship with God the Father. Okay, so that's universalism, and we don't want to go there. It might sound lovely in some degree, but it's totally an unbiblical thought. Hmm. Remember, when we interpret the Bible, we interpret it according to the Scripture around it, the context of what it's saying right in it here, the context of the book of Colossians, and also the context of the whole entirety of the Bible itself. So if you pull this one little verse out, you can make it say all kinds of things. But if you interpret it in the light of the Scripture, well, you can't. So if you want to be a universalist and say, ah, oh, this is what this means, everybody gets to go to heaven, and you say, okay, but does the Bible teach that in its entirety? Does the Bible tell us everywhere else that everybody, all dogs go to heaven? Well, of course not, right? Not at all. The Bible's very clear well, that there's a hell, and there's punishment. I mean, Jesus spoke more of hell than he did of heaven. Hmm. Because he knows those on the right path will get there, but you need to know what hell is like so you don't go there, I think is why he spent a little more time with that. But anyway, in fact, it's interesting. Speaking of maybe the angels being saved, being the all things or the things in heaven could be referring to, which is not, but uh, Matthew 25, 41, Jesus said that hell was created for the devil and his angels. Did you know that? That the original creation of this fiery place of torment was actually for the devil himself and all his fallen angels. Remember, they were all holy angels, and they all loved God until sin was found in the devil, and apparently he, he coerced a bunch of other angels to come with him, and God said, uh-uh, and he kicks them all out, because you don't get to live here. So they're fallen angels, angels they're the, the demons and the devils and so forth, that are plaguing mankind. But hell was made for those fallen angels. Interesting. And the Bible is very clear in Revelation chapter 20 that the devil himself will one day be scooped up and thrown into the lake of burning sulfur and will burn there for all eternity. Okay, So there's no universalism there for the devil. Right? He is going down, and we can be happy about that. That's okay. You can hate sin, and you can hate the devil. you got to love everybody else, but those are the things you, you, don't, you don't have to love. <laughs> Some people get a weird thing about the devil, too. It's probably from cartoons or something, that he's dressed in a red suit, and he has a big pitchfork, and he, he's in hell poking the people that go to hell, right? That's what the people think sometimes. That's not what the Bible says. He will be there, tormented day and night, forever and ever. He's not poking anybody. He's the one getting poked, right? But in also lost humanity that will, will join him if they reject Christ. Okay, so no universalism as far as uh, the angels are concerned. Their fate is already sealed. The holy ones love God. The wicked ones do not. And there's no redemption. There's no reconciling. So just take that off the table. Not that you were thinking that, but I'm just letting you know. Some people think these things, so that's not part of what's going on here. So the blood of Jesus, remember, was shed for you and I. The sin of the world, mankind, it was not for the angels. Hmm. Now, Jesus reconciling things in heaven, or all things, what, what is that referring to then? Okay, so I told you what it's not referring to. Again, I'm glad you asked. Excellent question. So here we go. Here's my thoughts. And as I read a lot about this, not everybody really grasped it because maybe the Bible just doesn't tell us certain things, and that's okay. We don't have to know everything. But here's a couple thoughts. Maybe the things in heaven that are reconciled to God might be the Old Testament saints. Hmm. Remember, before Jesus, there was a whole lot of folks. And some of them loved God, though. 
Some of them trusted in the Lord, and they were looking forward unto Jesus, the best they understood it, some very cloudy probably, and, and some knew Messiah better, depending on the prophets and the scriptures. But we have this whole mess of people before Jesus came that loved God, and many of them hated God as well. So I'm thinking that maybe these are the Old Testament saints. When Jesus died, the days in the tomb where the body was, his spirit what was going on with his spirit? Well, you know, he went to heaven. He presented himself as an offering in the true holy of holies for the sin of the world. But there's a little bit of thought here, and the Bible hints at it, that maybe Jesus and his spirit descended into Sheol, the place of the dead. And there, as Jesus described, there's two portions to Sheol. There's one side of the chasm that is basically hell and fire and torment, if you remember the rich man and Lazarus. On the other side of the, the chasm, well, was Lazarus, and he was comforted by Father Abraham. So all the Old Testament saints who loved God, who looked forward to Messiah's coming, they would be comforted and in peace with Father Abraham. And it looks like maybe Jesus declared himself as the Messiah, that he preached his death, and, and he's going to raise from the dead here real soon, Sunday morning. And they were, of course, excited on the righteous side because they loved God, therefore they would love the Son. And some of them had really grasped who Messiah was and were looking forward to him. And he may have taken them all into paradise with him. And they're now in the presence of the Father. Again, we can't be dogmatic on this, but there are definitely hints in the Scripture that speak of these things. So therefore, maybe it's the Old Testament saints in heaven are reconciled to God the Father through Jesus and through his blood shed on the cross. Remember, Jesus is the Savior of all who will be saved. Old Testament and New we always think of ourselves, and we look back to the cross and have faith in what Jesus did for me on the cross, right? But the Old Testament saints, they had to look forward to what would happen in the future. Interesting. To the Messiah that would come, they had faith in God, they loved God, they looked forward to the salvation that would come in Jesus. But they didn't get to see it. But they waited until maybe he came and proclaimed himself and brought them to paradise. And they said, woohoo, we've been waiting. We look back to the cross with faith. They looked forward to what God promised with faith. They were saved on credit, if you will. Hmm. But remember, Jesus' his blood was shed for their sins as well as ours. So he is the Savior of all who will be saved. So maybe those in heaven are reconciled here, and maybe that's the reference to the Old Testament saints. Another thought is maybe the things in heaven that are reconciled speak of creation uh, itself, like the universe. All of the universe, including the earth, could be part of this. The Bible does also tell us that um, our world is in a place of decay. I mean, even the sun itself is burning, but it can't burn forever. Eventually, it'll burn itself out, right? I mean, we got a little while and everything, but I think that still the universe is in a place of, of decay, and the earth itself, the Bible says, has actually been damaged because of sin. Think of all the natural disasters, the earthquakes, the floods, all these things that kill people. And we go, why, God, if you were nice, why would you do these things? Well, I think the result of our sin is a broken world. And these are punishments that are now part of our world that also can be redemptive because when my house is on fire, why God? But now I'm talking to God. And maybe helps me to call on his name because I realize I need him and all the diseases and all these things. And the Bible says, because if you think about the Garden of Eden, there was no diseases. There was no earthquakes. There were no fires. There was no problems. It was perfect harmony. But then sin came and everything changed. 
Even the very creatures themselves began to eat each other. They didn't in the Garden of Eden. There was no no death, remember? So even the creatures were changed. Everything was changed after sin, and now there's death and destruction, and they rip each other apart and eat each other, and there's death and all these things. Romans chapter 8 speaks of these. Romans chapter 8, if you want it for your notes. That creation groans, waiting to be reconciled. Waiting for all things to be reconciled and brought back to God the Father. Because what's Jesus going to do one day? He's going to melt all of this, and he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. The earth itself will be redeemed and reconciled back to God in a perfect way as it once was. Hmm. So that could be part of the all things, maybe, that it's referring to. Now, one thing that all things can't be on earth is reference to all people being saved. All people are not going to be saved, as the universalists will say. Um, The Bible's very clear. Everything's contingent on people turning to Jesus, right? If you read your New Testament, you know that it's about faith in Christ. And without faith, you're not going to make it. Let me me read to you uh, 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 7. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 7. About halfway down, verse 7. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with blazing fire and his powerful angels. That's the return of Christ. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, the good news of Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. They're going to be shut out from the presence of, of God. That means they're not reconciled. Right? They're not reconciled. And the eternal punishment would be hell. So very clearly, we cannot be universalists because everything hangs on a choice. Faith or not having faith in Christ. Hmm. So what does it mean by all things then? I think it means maybe all things that are willing to be reconciled will be reconciled. All things who make the choice, yes, I want Jesus, will be saved. Hmm. I think there's another thought. Remember in Philippians chapter 2, it says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess one day that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's an awesome passage. We love it. I wonder if maybe that reconciliation here is also that one day everything will be in its perfect place under Christ. It'll find its perfect position. Not everything will now be in a right relationship, only those who have chosen to be reconciled. But think about even the devil. Right now, is he in, his right rela- is he in a right uh, place to God? No. He is on the loose, running and harming and killing and destroying. That's what he's doing. When he's burning in hell, he will be in his proper place under Jesus for all eternity. So there's a sense in which the devil himself is reconciled under Christ because he found his proper place. That's where he deserves to be. And all of mankind that reject Christ, there's a sense in right now, they're running around as rebels, as enemies of God, and they are not underneath their proper place under Christ. But one day, he'll reconcile all things and put everything in their proper place, so even those who have rejected him in hell will be in their proper place under Christ. So that's another thought, I think, of the reconciliation of all things. All right, well, I'm glad you asked all those questions, and I tried to answer them for you. (laughs) Uh, Verse 21, verse 21. 
Again, this is called deep theology, guys. It's good stuff. It's the study of God. I want to dig into the Scriptures. Verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Okay, the Bible, Paul the Apostle, he's taking us back. He's taking the church back to the place we used to be before we trusted in Jesus. This is where you used to be. That He reminds us of our previous condition. What was that condition? It was alienation from God. We're alienated. We were separated from God because of our sin, as we talked about. But what does it say here specifically? Hmm. We're alienated from God because of our, our minds, right? We were enemies in our minds because of our evil behavior. Hmm. We were enemies. If you talk to somebody on the street, and say, do you believe in Jesus? Do you, you know, are you a Christian? No, no. Are you an enemy of God? Well, well, no. I'm not an enemy. I mean, I don't hate God. I don't really believe in him, but I don't hate, you know. <laughs> Most people wouldn't call themselves an enemy of God, but the scripture's clear that if you're not with him, you're against him. So that all who are not trusting Christ are literally an enemy of God. See, we have to understand the severity of the crime of sin, of the this rejection of God makes us an enemy. The grace of God takes an enemy and makes him a child or a son or a daughter. But if they re reject that grace, then they have to go to the punishment. So it's serious stuff. Oh, how we need Jesus. Oh, how we need him. So what is it that separates us? And you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Isn't that interesting? You were enemy right here. Right here. And then it, it, it produced evil behavior in your life. But it all started right here in the brain, in the mind. When I said, I don't want Jesus. I don't want God. Right here. That made me an enemy of the Lord. Hmm. Some people, everybody in the world can look at and go, yeah, that's evil behavior, right? Even the unbeliever can look at that and go, oh, yeah, it's bad. It's, it's evil behavior. Sure, I get that. But there's a whole class of people in our world whom we would probably call good people, right? Decent Americans, right? <laughs> there's a lot of them, actually. It, 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 a lot of people, if they found a, a, a wallet in Walmart and they opened it on the, on the parking lot and they picked it up and it's full of cash, but there's somebody's license in there, and they go, oh, they must have gone in the store. You know, a lot of these good, quote, good people, although the Bible says no one's good except for God. <laughs> but a lot of these, quote, good, worldly people, they would go into Walmart and they'd say, hey, can you page the, Mr. So-and-so, your wallet has been found, whatever, I don't know. And they would do that. Oh, there's a lot of good people. Now, there's a, there's a lot of people who totally take his money and, and take his ID and run off too, right? But we have a class of people called good people. We would say that they are. If you fell down in the street, crossing the street, they'd get out of their car, they'd pick you up, and they'd help you all across the street, wouldn't they? You okay, man? Can I call an ambulance? There's a lot of good people in our world. But here's the deal. Those good people are not going to heaven. Those good people are not going to heaven. Oh, they're pretty decent. They don't lie too much. They don't lust too much. They don't, you know, but so they have a little evil behavior, no doubt, in their life in some measure. But really, they're God compared to, well, that guy over there <laughs> and that guy. Hmm. Good people don't go to heaven. Only people trusting in the lordship 
and reconciliation of Jesus go to heaven, right? We have to understand this. So that good guy at work, the good neighbor across the street, he is in dire need of the Savior. He just has a little less evil behavior, but where is he a rebel? Right here, right here. That's where the good people of this world, they say, I can do it myself. I don't need God. I don't need that Jesus guy. I can be a good moral person. Hmm. But the Bible says that we're all once in the same condition. Everybody was there. We were all alienated from God. We all had different measuring amounts of evil behavior and we were enemies of God in the mind for a long time or a short time, depending on when you got saved. Hmm. But then the grace of God found us, didn't it? Didn't the mercy and the love reach out to you? And then we enter into verse 22. So the Bible takes us to where we once were, and now it takes us to where we are in Christ. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Oh, praise God. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> if you keep, just go home and read that over a bunch of times, and you'll be like, really? That? <laughs> uh, when we are called to Christ, and we say yes, and we leave the old sinful life behind, it's called repentance, and run to Jesus, what does God do through Jesus? He reconciles us to God, and we are presented before God as holy. I highlighted it in my Bible. Without blemish, and free from accusation. Do you know what it means to be holy? It means to be set apart and belong just to God. It also means to be morally perfect. Hmm, that's what holiness means. Because God is holy. He's set apart above all other things, and He's morally perfect. There's no sin in God. And the Bible commands us in Peter, be holy as I am holy, the Bible says. But here before God, in the eyes of God, Jesus presents us as holy. Without blemish. If you don't have any blemishes, it means you don't have any sin. Free from accusation. No one can bring an accusation of sin against you because it's not there. The Lord has taken it away. Hmm. So what's happening here is that when we're reconciled to God through Jesus, we are given the righteousness of God. Okay? We're given the righteousness of of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 for your notes. 2 Corinthians 5.21 it says, God made him who had no sin, Jesus, to become sin for us at the cross so that we might become the righteousness of God. He took our sin away to make us the righteousness of God. Now the theological term here is called the imputation of righteousness or imputed righteousness. To impute is to give over something to somebody else. Give credit uh, to their account. We don't have any righteousness. Put your faith in Jesus, and now you look in your account. See, if you look in your account before, you look at your bank account spiritually, it says, a wicked sinner on his way to hell. But you put your faith in Jesus, and you check, go ahead, check it when you get home. It says, the righteousness of God. How can that be? <laughs> How can that happen? Let me Romans four, Romans four three. Let me let me read uh, this to you. 
It explains it here for us, Romans uh, 4.3. We have another passage just uh, after that in Romans, if you want to turn there, Romans 4.3. It says, what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. You guys remember Abraham, oh, Father Abe, Father Abraham, right? He, we call him the father of faith because he believed God. He's the one through whom the whole Israelite nation was birthed out of the one guy who believed God. Abraham was a pagan. He was a pagan. He worshipped idols, but then God spoke to him, and he said, I believe you. I believe you. And God said, go move over here. He said, okay, I'll do that. He said, I'm going to give you a son. And he had to wait a long time, and it seemed impossible. And he said, I believe you, God. And when you believe God, that's called Faith. Faith. Abraham, the father of faith, he believed God. And what did God do? He credited to him righteousness. Old Abe, in his bank, spiritual bank account, it said, uh, a pagan, an idol worshiper. And then he put his faith in the one true God. He said, I believe you. I trust you. And then he checked his account and he said, oh, the righteousness of God. Because he believed he had faith. Everything hangs on faith. Let's go just a little bit further down in Romans, over to Romans 4.23. Just a few verses over. Romans 4.23 says, The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, not just for Abraham, but also for us. Also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Right? What it means is that if you believe God about Jesus, <laughs> that he was sent by the Father, that he died for our sins, and that the Father rose him from the dead, when you believe God about the Lord Jesus, check your account, because it says the righteousness of Christ inside there. Right? <laughs> The imputed righteousness given over. We weren't righteous, but God gave it to us because we put our faith in the perfect one, in the Savior, in Christ. Hmm. That's good news, huh? Hmm. Then now we are accounted as before God as holy, without blemish, and free from accusation. Now, the devil will keep accusing you, by the way. He's called the accuser. But when he accuses you of all that sin, you're like, uh, wait a second, I just read in my Bible, I'm free from accusation, so beat it. I'm not listening to you. Because mm -hmm. Jesus set me free. Here's the deal, though. Theologically, we don't want to make a mistake and stop right there. I, I fear some dear brothers and sisters in Christ of the Calvinistic persuasion stop right there sometimes. But it even gets better, actually. It even gets better. Huh, how could it get better? Here's the picture. Picture a mechanic. He's working on a car. His hands are all greasy. He's got grease all over his hands. Picture that as the life. The, the, the hands are the life of, of a person. The grease is the sin. Covered, right? In the nails and the cracks. And it's all over our life. The sin is there. And then they, they put their faith in the Lord Jesus. And then the, the righteousness of God covers over their filth, a, a white glove. Picture a white glove coming over the hand of the greasy guy's fingers, right? So God looks down, and that's, the, that's Jesus, the, the blood of Christ over the greasy sin. And God looks down and says, oh, I see the blood of Jesus. I see the perfection and the holiness now upon this one calling on my, my wonderful son. That's 
But that's sometimes, that's imputed righteousness, but some brothers and sisters will stop right there, and I fear this is a problem. Because think about it, it sounds great and everything, but it leaves us with a problem. Oh, I'm forgiven, I'm going to heaven, but I'm still greasy, right? I'm still, sin is in all the crevices, and I, and I can't break free from it. Therefore, I have to sin in word and thought and deed every day according to that type of theology. That they can't truly ever break free. I had a friend, uh, it was a brother-in-law, and one time he said, so you believe you can really live a righteous life? I said, yeah, because I think the scriptures declare that. He didn't know because of that. And he totally loves the Lord, but that was an area where he didn't fully understand, I think. So if we're still greasy underneath there, what that means is we've been set free from the penalty of sin. We've been covered. I'm going to heaven. But I'm not really set free from the power of sin because it's still in the crevices of my life and it still controls me. But Romans chapter 6 says that I used to be a slave to sin, but no longer in Christ. I'm now a slave to righteousness, right? And righteousness is my master and I must serve him because Jesus sets me free. So I believe the scriptures declare that the blood of Jesus is so powerful it covers over us, but then it cleanses underneath. And it sets us free from the penalty of sin, but then it sets us free from the power of sin so it doesn't have to dominate and rule my life as my master any longer. Hmm. Covered and cleansed, purified by the blood of Jesus. Right, hmm. All the filth washed Away. So we have the, the covering, the white gloves over us, the, the righteousness of Christ, but then we have a cleansing of the sin underneath. Huh. Let me give you a couple scriptures to talk about this. One from the Old, one from the New Covenant. Ezekiel 36, I believe this is something that God is speaking of that would take place in its fullness in the New Testament under the new birth being born again in Christ, because it really describes the new birth. This is Ezekiel 36 for your notes, or if you want to turn there, verse 25. Ezekiel 36, 25. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. The hands get washed. I will cleanse you from all your impurities. Right? He takes it away. And from all your idols, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. That's being born again, a new creation. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, one that beats for God, not in stubborn rebellion. He takes it out. That's where we're born again. We're transformed. We're changed. And I will put my spirit in you, right? The Holy Spirit comes to live with us and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. It's the Holy Spirit that empowers us to obey and serve God and live a life that pleases him. And it will save you from all your uncleanness. Now in the New Testament, I won't turn there because I know it so well, and many of you do too, but if you don't know this verse, write it down. If you don't have anything to write with, come and see me later. I'll give you a pen. Write it on your hand. 1 John 1.9. Not the Gospel of John, but the little, little letter, 1 John 1.9. Many of you know it. Such a beautiful verse. And there's many other verses that speak of such a thing, but let me quote this one to you. It says that if we confess our sins... He is faithful 
And he is just to forgive us our sins and to purify us, purify us or cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Cleansing, that means under the gloves of the the, the blood of Jesus, there's the cleansing power where he washes it all away. (laughs) It's not there in the crevices of our life just to torment us. But Jesus actually washes it away. All unrighteousness. That means there's nothing left but righteousness, right? That's what the Bible declares. <laughs> Forever and ever, right? Forever and ever. Covered and cleansed. New creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Free from accusation, holy and without blemish. Hmm. But you know what? We can still sin. Hmm. Oh, the Lord will wash us clean. Now what does he do? He empowers us and teaches us how to stay clean. And there's the struggle of life right there. There's the Christian walk. And sometimes we hit the dirt and we get back up. And because we can we can put some grease back on the hands. Hmm. But here's the deal. If you fail and you sin, what are you supposed to do? Forgive me, Jesus. I'm sorry I was so stupid. I want to do better next time. I confess it. I'm cleansed. I'm purified. 1 John 1.9. Hmm. Here's another deal, too. Sometimes with this more Wesleyan-style theology, growing up in it my, myself, there was a fear in which I could just fall away and lose all my salvation at a drop of a hat, and you kind of left you kind of freaked out a little bit. Well, I do, as, I, as we'll talk here, I believe one can forfeit the grace of God in their lives, but I don't think it's easy at all. I think the Scripture tells us some beautiful things. So let me read to you 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, just after 1 John 1, 9. This is 1 John 1, 2. No, 1 John 2, 1. I'm a little dyslexic sometimes. He says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. That's the heart of God. God's like, go and sin no more, he told the woman. Right? This is what we get. Stop, stop. He says, but if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus, beautiful Christ, <laughs> the righteous one. It was an atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sin of the world. So if you're in the Christian life, and you're walking along, and, and you're tempted, and you fall, and you sin, you didn't lose your salvation. Oh, you got some grease on the hands, but the glove is still covering, right? Jesus is still over there, the blood of Christ, speaking in our defense. Yes, he was a knucklehead, but he's mine, and I got him covered, right? So yes, there's the covering, even if we fail, Jesus is there. Praise his name forever and ever, right? Thank you, Lord. But there can be a problem, though. Hmm. There can be a problem. Because some people don't, 1 John 1, 9, much in their life. And they fail and they sin. And they feel the conviction of God on their heart. And they go, eh, I'm not listening. And they go a little further and keep sinning, and God's like, come on, knock it off, come on, his spirit is there, he's pushing on them, and they're like, no, no, I want to do my thing, and they do it more, and more, and more, and then there's a callus of sorts that can grow on the soul, right, 
and they no longer are sensitive to the Spirit of God. He's talking to them. He says, I don't want you to go down this road, but I fear that many people do sometimes. And they keep sinning. And what's the problem here? Some people will actually forfeit their faith. And I can't tell you where that line is, but I believe that it's true, and I believe that the Bible actually teaches that as well. And I've seen people do it, unfortunately. Sometimes people forfeit the grace that's been given to them. Hmm. Let's look at verse 23. The verse before it says, we're reconciled to God through faith in Jesus. We're holy, without blemish. We're free from accusation. And that is all ours. Verse 23, if you continue in your faith. You see that? If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. And this is the gospel that you have heard and has proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Notice it's contingent. The holiness and without blemish and the free of accusation is contingent if you continue in your faith. That's the key. That's the key. Think about it. How did the covering of the blood of Jesus, the righteousness in your account, how did it get there in the first place? It came by faith, right? When Abraham believed God, it was credited to him as righteousness. When we believe, we get the righteousness. But if you fail to continue in your faith, you will not continue in the righteousness, right? It's contingent on faith. So the one who sears their conscience towards God by no, 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 rebelling, rebelling in their sin, that Christian will eventually come to a place where God says, you want it, I will let you have it. And the forfeited grace is gone it, it, that we had. It, it's taken away. Really, because we didn't want it. God did everything to call us. and He'll bring other people into our lives to do all kinds of amazing things. But there comes a place where it looks like God lets go because we're not continuing in our faith and we move away from the gospel of Jesus and then we're in a desperate place. That person can come back, absolutely. But they're no longer in the grace of God. One last passage before we close. Let me read to you in uh, 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy one nineteen. First Timothy 1.19, Paul, he's talking here and he, he says, holding on to faith, holding on to faith and a good conscience before God, right? Obeying, holding on to faith. He says, some have rejected these and so have, re have shipwrecked their faith. They had faith, they were holding on to it and a good conscience before God. But he says, some people, they shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander. He's talking to two guys in that particular church who had shipwrecked their faith. And he says, Whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. That means they had faith, and then they shipwrecked it. And Paul turned them over to the devil. Probably as a redemptive thing. Well, you want sin? Go ahead and have it. Let it wreck you and ruin you. And maybe you'll come running back to the Father one day, coming back to Jesus Picture it like this. Picture the, the world as a big ocean. 
And all mankind were born into the waves, we're born into the sea, and we're floating around, and the sea is, is the sin, and we're immersed up to here and up to here, and we're sin all around us, right? We're floating in the sin, in the mind, in our own evil behaviors. And then a boat comes along, the gospel of Jesus. And it comes rolling up and says, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. <laughs> he will reconcile you and, and forgive you and cleanse you and cover you and make you a child of God and give you eternal life forever and ever. You want it? Yeah, sign me up. And he grabs us, Jesus does, and he pulls us into the boat. <laughs> and he goes along through the ocean. And all these people in the boat, that's a church, I think. That's a church. Okay? We're in the boat of faith, in the boat of Christ. We're no longer in the sin, immersed in it, but we're, we're, we're free in Jesus, getting ready to go be with him forever. But I also think we have our own individual little boat, our own little boat of faith. And as we cruise along in the boat, I'm out of the sin, I'm, I'm living for Jesus, but I can bounce into rocks. <laughs> Waves can come over, the, the sinful wave can come into my boat and go, oh, I got a little wet on that one. Forgive me, Jesus. First John 1, 9, I confess my sins. But I'm still in the boat, right? I'm still keeping the faith. But then there's guys like Alexander and Hymenaeus. Oh, they drove their ship right into the rocks of unbelief. Whatever sin that was, they just smashed into it and they just kept smashing. And God was there talking to them and they rejected it. And pretty soon their boat just broke to pieces. And now they're floating in the water and they're back into their sin, right? Because they shipwrecked their faith. Mm. So as our scripture says this morning, it's all contingent on continuing to believe and trust in Jesus. Staying close to Christ. I think it's hard to shipwreck your faith, but I've seen people do it. So this morning, what has God said to you in our passage? What wonderful stuff has God said to you? Has anybody been getting a lot of, a lot of waves into their boat? And you need to get a bilge pump and pump it out. You're still in the faith, but you've been letting some waves in. Maybe you need to confess that to Jesus this morning. Maybe somebody's boat's pretty cracked and it's leaking bad and you're sinking and you're afraid you're going to shipwreck your faith or you've already done that, I don't know. But you can come back and get into the boat dry and clean. And what good news that we are before God holy and without blemish and free from accusation. Mm. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for this beautiful group of people that you have brought to church today. I know their faces, Lord. And I know that they're calling on your name. We pray, God, you'd bring a whole lot of people to hear these types of messages that don't know your name, that are not reconciled to you, that are lost in the ocean and need to get into the boat. They didn't shipwreck their faith. They never had faith, Lord. Or those two who broke their boats in pieces. So we pray you draw them in. Draw them in, Holy Spirit. Please, Lord. But we want to thank you, Jesus, that you are God in all his fullness. Come to save us. We thank you for the reconciling power of your blood, Lord Jesus, shed on the cross for us. Oh, praise your name. And Lord, this morning, we renew our faith more and more in the cross of Christ. 
and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We choose to believe the Father sent you, Jesus. And we thank you for the righteousness that is in our accounts, God. Thank you that you took us from being an enemy, alienated in our mind, full of evil behavior, and now reconciled, brought back into our right, harmonious place with the Father. Oh, Jesus, we thank you forever and ever and ever for these things. Oh, God, we thank you for the holiness in your sight that covers us. Without blemish and free from accusation, Lord, I pray your people go home and highlight those words in, your, in their Bibles. I pray that when the devil comes knocking and accusing, as he so often does, that they would say, Nope, nope, my Jesus covers me. And my Jesus cleanses me from all my filth. And I serve him. And I don't listen to the lies of the devil anymore. And Lord, give us strength to continue in the faith. To not move from the hope of the gospel. And Lord, any brother or sister this morning with the waves kind of coming in or the boat kind of cracking. Help them, Lord, to confess those sins to you. 1 John 1.9 and help them, help me, help us all, Lord, to live a life of holiness, sanctified and set apart, victorious in Jesus, covered and cleansed. Oh, we love you for these things, Lord. We will praise you for all eternity for these things. So get us through this life, Lord. Keep us clean. In Christ we pray. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.